0: The first thing that we all need to understand and what we get to embrace is the fact that we're all aging and we all want to age with dignity and joy. And what will it take for that to be real for you? And how do you think about what elements that you need to plan for? We need to talk about aging with all the joys and possibilities that exist as we age.
1: Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home On Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home On Air.
2: Welcome to another episode of At Home on Air, conversations that matter for the quality of the experience of later life. I am Susie Stadler, an architect and the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, the producer of this program. Janet Spears, CEO of the Meta Fund, is our guest tonight. The Meta Fund, under Janet's leadership, has become a leader in funding aging with a commitment to racial equity in San Francisco. Welcome, Janet. Thank you so much for joining us for this important conversation about how private funding strategies can support aging in place in an era of rapid gentrification and community change. So now let's move on to the many questions we have for you. Thank you again for joining us. It is always interesting to trace professional paths, especially in the field of aging. You have a Master of Science in Electrical Engineering from Purdue and a Management Certificate from the University of North Carolina. Now, you are the Chief Executive Officer of MetaFund, a major funder of aging causes in San Francisco. How do the dots connect in this career? We would love to hear from you.
0: Quite a straightforward path, but just really quickly, after graduate school, I started my career at AT AT&T Bell Labs in New Jersey. And we had a business resource group that did a lot of work in the community. It's called the Alliance of Black Telecommunications Employees. And I really got an opportunity to do a lot of volunteering in the community. Through doing that and through my 20 plus year career in various jobs in various places in the country, I realized that my heart was asking for a little bit more, like what else could I do that could be beneficial in community? I had several close friends who had left the corporate sector, not necessarily at but had left. Other corporate jobs and had moved into the nonprofit sector, and they encouraged me to take a look around and say, "Okay, maybe this is something that might be beneficial." So I took an early retirement in 2007, and I started looking around to see where I might be able to learn more about the nonprofit sector, since I had been, you know, a volunteer and, as I think of it, a writer of checks to things that appeal to me, but had never worked in the sector in this looking around and working with a couple headhunters, found this space called Community Foundations and specifically interviewed for and got a job at East Bay Community Foundation in Oakland, California, serving Alameda and Contra Costa County. And I found that to be a perfect place where I could learn the breadth of both raising money and also giving money out to programs that were of interest to donors and or interest to individuals. So that's how my career got started. After eight years of working in the East Bay, I found that I was missing that community connection because I have lived in San Francisco for 30 plus years now. I didn't feel like I knew enough about what was happening in my local community. So I once again started working with Headhunter and said, I really want a job in San Francisco in community. In this process, I was recruited and hired by the board of directors of MetaFund in December of 2016. So I have been with MetaFund since January of 2017 and having a great time learning more about what's happening in my own backyard, or as I like to say, in the community in which I live.
2: Yes, and much has changed since you joined MetaFund, no? Has changed. Previously, we were doing a lot of health funding, working
0: with hospitals because we are what's considered a conversion foundation, which means when hospitals merge or insurance plans merge, the goodwill benefit out of that typically becomes a private foundation. There are several of them in the country and several large ones here in California. And so prior to my arrival, we were more focused on, I'll call it health care. Related funding. In 2016, what interests me so much was the fact that the foundation had recently made a commitment to focus on a population, and that population were older adults. The one thing that I have taken with me through these jobs in this sector has been this engineering background or this ability to innovate, learn, and bring that kind of failing fast into the sector to see what we can learn, quite frankly, from the community. (laughs) and assist
2: with resources to move those things forward. The MetaFund is a private foundation. What do you think should be the role of private foundations in urban environments like San Francisco? And specifically, where has the MetaFund put their priorities? What can others learn from you? You know, Can other cities learn from you?
0: I think private foundations have a role in the philanthropic sector that is different than community foundations. So I'll speak about private foundations, which is where I am now. I would say that we have uh, capital to invest in causes aligned with our mission. And in that mission, we look to place our funding in ways in which MetaFund is choosing to get systems to perform in a better way. Or, quite frankly, to perform to meet the needs of older adults. And so, for us, we consider our work as an incubator of ideas and of good grant making by listening to community and responding to community with what their needs are. We like to think of it as creative innovation or applied creativity. Think of it this way with our private dollars or with our dollars for the community, we can provide grants to organizations where they say that they think they have a good idea that they want to move forward. When you do that, you have the opportunity to take the best learnings from a multitude of organizations and spread them through the community in a way that benefits more people. We have done this really in a couple ways based on background and pre-planning grants. So there are ideas that people have, but they don't have the dollars to hire a consultant or spend resources within their own organization to have that idea be recognized and be tested out to see if it actually has legs, as I'd like to think about it. And we have also invested in even larger activities, such as California's Master Plan for Aging, with a collaborative of other foundations that are focused on older adults and how do we put our dollars together So before there was actually funding from the state, we got together as the private sector, private foundation, to provide those flexible dollars to the state so they could start the work before the legislature caught up with, oh, we need to do this on a grander scale. So there's always flexible dollars that are needed within government, within nonprofits, in order to realize
2: ideas or community-led solutions. I mean, it's pretty unusual. I can only speak from my own experience to actually have who acts as an incubator, which really opens up opportunities for nonprofit to experiment. And I think what you also do is fund operational support and multi-year support, which is really unusual. Can you talk a little bit about this decision to do that?
0: Many foundations fund programs. You have a program and you want to serve so many meals and you reach out to a foundation and you say, I want to do X and I'm going to do it by Y and please give me, you know, $1,000, $10,000, whatever to do that. What we have done and how we look at our work is it's called trust-based philanthropy and it has several Mm -hmm. elements to it. But the one that I'll talk about, which is really around our funding ethos, is multi-year general operating support grants. This takes the support of a board because the board of directors is the governing body of any institution. And so over time, MetaFund has moved to this multi-year general operating support grant making. What it has allowed us to do is build really deep relationships with our grant partners, and they know what to expect over time, and they know this is not a punitive type of relationship that they're building with us. I think there's flexible funding needed to do capacity building and capacity building can take on many shapes. It could take on succession planning. It could take on a new ED coming into a job and needs to do professional development or needs a coach, or it could take on training of your board. Many of those things are not funded via contract-based and or program-related grant-making. And so, EDs or organizations that have ideas that they want to test out need the flexibility to do that. We still have the typical check-in with our grant process, but another element of the trust-based philanthropy is you try to simplify the process for the people who are doing the work in community. What we seek to do and what we do with our grant making is we make a grant. It's a multi-year And we have verbal check-ins. We're not asking for, you know, multitudes of reports so we can create binders so then we can read them and say, oh, you know, hooray for us. Look what we've done. It's more about what is it that this organization is learning? What have they been able to do with their capacity? What have they been able to do with growing in ways that they want it to. And quite frankly, the piece that I really adore about this is people are allowed to do things that don't work out. They learn from that also. And to me, that's such a great aspect of learning. Everything's not going to work out perfectly. One thing that I really appreciated when I was hired here, it was a conversation I had during the interview process with the board. I said, you know, I think we need to be able to take some risks and risks in community, which to me is really just learning with community about what might work better for older adults here in San Francisco. So it's an inspiring way of doing good grant making. It is good grant making. It's a great practice. Many foundations are now adopting this and there needs to be more of it. It really is a partnership between the board of directors and the staff and the community to make sure that you can actually implement that with success.
2: Yes, it seems like a total win-win.
0: It's complicated. Let's be clear. It's as simple as counting outputs. When you're creating a relationship for the long haul, it's a little bit more complicated than just saying, yes, yes. Here's some money and do whatever you want. It's like, yeah, what is it that you want to do with this? And how is it that you think this will make things better? You know, the typical things that you want to know, what kind of impact are you seeking to do over time with these flexible dollars?
2: So can you tell us some of the success stories? A couple that kind of fall in two
0: different categories. These are all San Francisco based. The first is we did some early funding with Homebridge, which here in San Francisco is one of the major contractors with the city for in home services and support. So that means they provide people who support older adults with disabilities, in home health workers. The executive director came to us and said, I want to start. Working on a certificate program where the home workers can get credits for the work that they're providing as they're doing it. We're like, that sounds like a wonderful idea. And so they worked with San Francisco State, and there's now a certificate program. We weren't the only contributor to this. I want to be perfectly clear. But when I talk about being an early planning grant, when someone has an idea, But before they can pitch it to someone else, they need to be able to spend time to write it down of what it is they want to do and then take that forward. Another planning type of grant, a two-year project that actually happened during the pandemic was with Unlock and Open House. Unlock was the founding organization of a PACE program. Open House focuses on the LGBTQ community here in San Francisco. So they wanted to come together. Those two EDs had this idea that they could take the best learnings and benefits and apply it to a new community because Unlock primarily worked in the Asian community, but they had never taken their program in that learning to a different community. And the Open House ED at the time and the Unlock ED at the time said, why don't we try to create a program that's targeted at a different community? and see if we can bring those benefits of applying a PACE-like program to that community. So that's another example of getting in early with organizations that have ideas and providing resources for them to try out something that is becoming and has become successful. I've been here for about five years now, and there are several other little projects that we fund to go along with our core grant making that is focused on reducing social isolation and loneliness, and focused on caregiving. And all of that is with a racial equity lens. And that's how we think about all the work that
2: we do. In this experimental funding during the pandemic, there were a couple of grassroots efforts which evolved. Have you gotten into supporting these grassroots efforts, or is this something you observe and maybe will fund in the future?
0: Grassroots groups can really generate a lot of public energy and urgency needed, and we definitely have seen that around equity issues over the last several years. Once again, thinking about it from an innovation perspective, and one area that is dear to my heart is really around broadband connectivity. You know, in the early 90s, I spent time wiring schools here in San Francisco for internet because the digital divide then. There's still a digital divide even in a city like San Francisco. There's still about 100,000 homes in San Francisco that lack broadband or basic digital skills to use broadband. One of the organizations that we worked with and that we fund, a grassroots organization, is San Francisco Senior and Disability Action. It's a longstanding grantee of ours, and they're really a collective action organization. Their effort was really around trying to create free, accessible, reliable internet to help close this digital divide. And so they worked with raising this issue up. They've had a campaign about free Wi-Fi for seniors and people with disabilities. It's gained quite a bit of traction over the course of the last year. It is an example of a grassroots organization that is having major impact in getting to something that is a digital divide. MetaFund is really focused on systems change, really working on How do we have real life work that happens in community impact and change the system? Think about it has state, local, government, federal systems. How do those get changed such that it's transformative and we get better outcomes for our older adults? As I said, we do our work with the racial equity lens, and we're always evaluating how organizations are working to impact those furthest from access and opportunity. To go along with that, capacity funding. So when we are doing capacity building, we've done an evaluation and learning capacity building cohort to allow organizations who self-selected and said, okay, we would like to improve our evaluation and learning capabilities to build the grassroots power that you need in order to be, as I like to think of it, the outside game that supports the inside game of legislation and policy that comes down. So I think you need both being where we are and the size that we are. We try to focus on where do we think over time we can have the greatest impact. And that has been focusing on changing the systems and working at both a local level to have nonprofits become as strong as they can with providing capacity building grants and also general operating support grants and then funding at the state level for a master plan.
2: Yes. So really funding this private-public partnerships.
0: That is what I learned when I was at East Bay Community Foundation. The power of public-private partnerships. That is the crux of how community foundations operate. And that is really, really important. And I brought that learning of what we did there to MetaFund.
2: Also, this incredible pressure on elders in San Francisco, which is happening right now in the times of gentrification and changes in the community, the number of African-American elders declining in San Francisco. One great example of a community center and community efforts, which you have been working with, the George Davis Senior Center. Can you talk a little bit about this, how this could become a seed or a role model for similar efforts?
0: Oh, absolutely. Gosh, there's so much to say about the Dr. George Davis senior center that's located in the Bayview area of San Francisco. Let me just connect this in a way that's very personal to me. So my parents moved from the South to California in the 40s during the Great Migration. I had two uncles that came before my parents, one on my mom's side and one on my dad's side. The one on my mom's side settled in Bayview and the other one settled in Richmond. And so I have a real affinity to the Bayview. Although we lived in Richmond, I spent a lot of time in the Bayview when I was growing up. And I personally love to listen to my elders talk. As the youngest, I would hide underneath the table and listen to them talking about things. I had no idea what they were talking about, but it was fun. The older kids didn't really want me around because I was the baby. So let's just be clear there. As we think about What has occurred in the Bayview? This organization, the Dr. George Davis Senior Center, was a labor of love and a dream for Dr. Davis, who is deceased. It's run by his wife, Kathy Davis, and she is the executive director there. The Bayview was a historically Black neighborhood. When I was growing up, as the city has gentrified and more African-Americans have been displaced and have moved out of the city, there's not that same sense of community, except for at the George Davis Senior Center. And I say that having been there, it's the aging campus. It's the hub of community services in addition to having senior housing. So it's a housing place as well as a place where elders can come and spend time playing pool, sitting around talking, having dance classes. They have a choir. There's so many things in this place that's still available for the seniors and for our elders to spend time. It truly retains the value of community in this area that has changed over the years. And with philanthropic dollars, they're one of our grant partners. Even with the changes that have happened, it's held on to that multi-generational support for community. And it is a small town within a bigger city is how I think about the George Davis Senior Center.
2: Yes, we need more of those, no? Yes, definitely. Even though I still have some questions too. (laughs) Let's go to the audience.
1: You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at at home with growing org, and register for the next live episode.
2: So Howard asks Does MetaFund look for organizations to fund, or do most of your clients come to you? We are an invitation-only organization because of
0: several reasons, but we go out and we look for organizations to fund that fit within the framework of where we're working. We're looking for those that have a racial equity lens who are working with those furthest from access and opportunity here in San Francisco. We do that because we have a limited two and a half to $3.5 million dollars a year to give out we would end up saying no to a whole bunch of organizations. Having them spend time applying for a grant is not a good use of their time if the opportunity to receive a grant would be very limited. That's also important because in order to have, I'm going to call it sustained impact over time, you need enough money to do that. And so we don't want to give out $1,000 grants. That's not helpful for the amount of work that happens at the nonprofit or quite frankly, with the staff here, because we're a very small staff of just seven people. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. So we are an invitation only organization. Our board members bring opportunities to us. We're always out in community looking for organizations that will support the two areas that we're focused on, reducing social isolation and loneliness and caregiving.
2: Yes. And I'm glad you also emphasized the two areas, social isolation and caregiving, which are really important in all communities and especially in underserved communities.
0: And I think we've all learned so much about caregiving during this pandemic. And we've learned about social isolation and loneliness during this pandemic. Several things that we all have experienced in a different manner than what we probably knew in
2: 2019. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) A related question from Annette is, does MetaFund look for donors or do donors come to you?
0: No, actually we do not. As a, Private Foundation. We exist based on our endowment and the payout from our endowment. So how the stock market investment market does is how we actually do our work. You know, all of our grant partners could accept dollars to be supported by what we do. And on our website, you can see the list of grant partners who we work with closely, and it links to what they do in community. But we
2: are not in the fundraising side. We're in the grant giving side. Can you talk maybe a little bit about how you select your grant partners or how this comes about? Because I think that's a really interesting aspect of your funding too.
0: It is a complicated process because what you're looking for is a combination of the strategies that we're working on. So the strategies in reducing social isolation and loneliness. So I'll just name a couple. We look for organizations who are trying to get our elders wired connect it to the internet, et cetera. We look for organizations who are working to connect social services with health services, and this is all to reduce social isolation. So those are the strategies that we use. With that, you then look for organizations that have the ability to do advocacy work, to run their programs, and to build for the future. We call it the power pathways. Power for now, that's basically running your programs power for later, which is planning capacity for the future, and power for change, which is advocacy and being able to advocate for the changes that your community needs. All of this is done with looking in communities in San Francisco that are furthest from access and opportunity. It really mirrors areas that have been redlined or from a redlining perspective in the history of the city. So those are the places where we do most of our work, and that's where the nonprofits who become our grant partners work. And we talk about them as partners because there's already a power dynamic between a funder, MetaFund, and a grant partner or a grantee. And what we're trying to do, not only with the way that we fund with multi-year general operating support, but also in the language that we use, that we speak with them as partners as opposed to they're our grantee and they need to do this or that. So it's a combination of language. For the most part, those are the high-level strategies that we're using in a particular focus area for a particular population. And we look at different communities around the city that are furthest from access and opportunity to do that
2: work. The follow-up question, you have funding partners. That means other funders you join forces with? Can you give some examples? Because I think that's also an interesting way to amplify your impact. Oh, absolutely. Let me
0: start at the highest level. There are not a lot of funders that focus on the older adult population or older adults. That's the first thing in philanthropy. It's anywhere from one to 2% of philanthropic dollars go to support older adults. Now, if you look in California, there are a few of us, that are solely focused on supporting the older adult population in various strategies or various areas that we're focused on. There's seven of us that were in the initial collaborative providing resources to the state to do some pre-work before we had gone into an actual master plan for aging, 10-year plan that the governor put forth two years ago in Southern California. There's Archstone Foundation, and there is the SCAN Foundation, It's not a private foundation. It's actually a public charity up here in Northern California, MetaFund, the May and Stanley Smith Charitable Trust, West Health, the San Diego Foundation, and
2: the Gilbert Foundation. Thank you. And I think you already answered this question, but Carla asked what percentage of philanthropic dollars go to older adults? It's one to 2%. That is a number from Foundation Center, a philanthropic serving
0: organization. It's really coming up as we have this master plan for aging for the state of California. Although other foundations would not say that they fund older adult work specifically. In the sector, we talk about it as being a population focus. There is a lot of intersection between work that you may be doing. Let's say you focus on economic development or something of that nature. That is going to impact older adults because many people live in multi-generational households. So I think that number is correct based on how the data is looked at. However, I think there are more intersections, especially as we look at how the state is trying to create a place where we can all age with dignity and joy, where all ages and all ages and stages can age. I believe that's the tagline for the master plan for aging. There's a lot of work going on at the state level between cabinet level people, transportation, housing. Health and Human Services, the California Department of Aging, that are working together because the demographics of California are aging. You know, here in San Francisco, by 2030, 25 percent of the population will be 60 or older. That's just the reality of what's happening in the state of California. Some areas will age more rapidly, but if you just look at the whole state, that's why the governor said, you know, we need a master plan for aging. So, We don't have a significant amount of dollars targeted at the population of older adults, but a lot of philanthropic dollars do intersect with the support of older adults. It also could be said that we've been conditioned to think that older adults are taken care of by the government as we age, but unfortunately, that's just not the case. There's a lot of hidden poor that exists when you're in between Medicare you're Medicare eligible, but after you've stopped working and many other programs just don't meet all the needs. So we have a lot of work to do, but you know, there's a lot of energy and a lot of smart people
2: working on master plans across the whole country. Yes, that is hopeful that imagination is being put into this. Related to what you just said with the hidden poor, Donna asks, how do you support agencies that serve middle-income seniors too poor to be rich? Too rich to be poor. My experience is they get less services than anyone.
0: I would just say I agree. It is one of the five bold goals of the master plan. And bold goal number five is affording aging. We do not at Betafun have the resources to support the full breadth of everyone that's in need. And so we needed to pick a place to work, and where we have chosen to work is with those furthest from access and opportunity. There is definitely I'll call it the hidden poor or that gap that exists as we are working with the state and with our colleagues. We're all trying to seek a way to close that gap with
2: better programs for all of Californians. Suzanne asks, love that MetaFund embraces risks, and I think we all love this, and is willing to fund new unproven ideas. As an incubator, willing to fund new projects how do you evaluate projects that fail? Do you share the lessons of any epic fails beyond just sharing with the board? That's a really good
0: question. So the first thing is the limited dollars that we spend on these projects. It's basically my CEO discretionary dollars really fund most of these incubated ideas because that's what I find most interesting. We typically share with our other funders, that are in the aging space that find that most interesting of what didn't work well from a, I'll call it an investment perspective or from a risk perspective. And then of course our board hears we share that with other people in the field that may be tangentially related. So like a succession planning grant or something of that nature that didn't have enough real teeth around it to make it valuable. Those types of things are kind of shared in some of the other audiences, other boards that I sit on, we do not spend a lot of time and maybe we should spend more documenting everything that fails to share from a white paper perspective, which is kind of what I would have done in my career at the labs.
2: Yes. Christina's question is related to this, what Suzanne just asked, given all the grantees you have worked with, are there opportunities to share lessons learned from them?
0: Part of this has changed in the last couple of years because of the pandemic. I can speak of a couple collaboratives that we have done, and it's really been about sharing in-community with community. So we had an evaluation and learning cohort where we had a six-part training done by an outside training organization, and 10 of our grant partners participated in this training where they shared with one another and they learned from one another. So a lot of what happens in the philanthropic sector is really around cohort learning. We also bring our grant partners together so they can learn together and share their lessons learned of what's working in each of their communities. What's happened since the pandemic is we haven't done any in-place convening work in two years now. We have a community room that's one element of our philanthropic support for community at our location. Our grant partners are prioritized, but we allow nonprofits to use the community room free of charge to have their own learnings, their own meetings, their own cohort learning at our location. So that's another aspect of our support for community. We don't have the answers. The answers lie in community. And so community needs to come together to share what's working and what's not working. And we try to help facilitate that on various levels by having cohort trainings, by bringing our grant partners together, and by having a space where nonprofits can have their own meetings. So that's the three ways we're trying to have impact.
2: Yes, we were actually beneficiaries of this community room a number of years ago, pre-pandemic time when we had our in-person forums. It's a fantastic space and a great resource For the community. Well, I have to make a plug. We have actually moved our offices. We are
0: now even more convenient than we used to be. We're at 101 Montgomery, right by the Montgomery BART station. We have not opened up our community room yet to outside guests. Hopefully, by July, we will have our community room open and the ability to host people once again. But it has been closed given the pandemic and everything. We are in a space that is a little bit larger than before that has Zoom room capabilities and those things. When we first moved, we had no idea we were going to have a pandemic. We were just kind of planning for the future and some capabilities. And now who knew that we'd be having all these Zoom calls?
2: Yes, so true. And it will be a really precious moment to come together in person. Yes, it will be. Yes. So a very specific question from Carla from the SF Tech Council. We are always working to get the city of San Francisco interested in funding tech access initiatives for old adults. Do you have suggestions that would help to make the case for Wi-Fi devices, training and support for older adults?
0: I don't know what the roadblocks have been in the past of why it hasn't moved forward or why The city hasn't taken that on as an opportunity. There is the Community Tech Network, and then there's SF Tech Council, and I'm not sure if those two organizations have talked to one another, but I think maybe a conversation between the two of what's working in both places, and maybe there's a coming force (laughs) to the city. You know, there's the device, there's the training, and then there's broadband. Those are the three elements that you need to actually have something work and be of value to the community. So I don't have an answer for what will make the city say yes, but I'm always like, you got to keep trying and trying
2: a different door or going in force with others. Yes. Going in force with others. (laughs) Great advice. One question I also wanted to ask you, what can we as individuals contribute to the work you do? The first
0: thing that we all need to understand and what we get to embrace is the fact that we're all aging and we all want to age with dignity and joy. And what will it take for that to be real for you? And how do you think about what elements that you need to plan for? We need to talk about aging with all the joys and possibilities that exist as we age. I'm late in my 50s and I'm so much happier now than I was when I was 25 or 30, and I'm looking forward to aging. I think one, getting involved and finding out what resources exist now so you know what's available as you age and as we all are aging. That's the first thing. And second thing is think about how do you make connections? And, you know, I lived alone for a very long time. How do you connect outside of your own space? You have intrinsic value just by being here. And with that value, what is it that you're going to share with others as you build relationships outside of yourself? So that's another area that I think about quite a bit. And we don't get to choose our families, but we get to choose our friends. And so make sure that, you know, choose the friend side. If your family, you know, doesn't work. I don't have that issue. I have a fantastic family. I'm blessed every day with that. But I think volunteering, I did a lot of volunteer work prior to having this as a career and it served me well. I would say read and continue learning. I learn something new pretty much every day. Get plugged into and listen to what's happening with this master plan for aging. It's a game changer for California. It has two-year goals. In September of this year, the state will read out what's happened in the first two years. On the website, there are webinars to listen to. There are metrics that the state's being measured by, dashboards. All of that will feed into what's possible as we all age. I'm glad the governor put this forth as an effort and that there are two-year milestones to see what kind
2: of progress we're making. So those are just top-of-mind things. As state incubator for ideas. What is missing in terms of ideas out there? What community efforts would you like to see for older adults?
0: So there is there is one thing. I wish that everyone knew what was available in their own neighborhood. There's a park within 10 minutes of everybody here in the city. There's some small park that you can go to. We have a community garden spot. I've met more of my neighbors at the community garden than I have taking the
2: trash out. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes, that's so true. And
0: I wish every older adult knew where their neighborhood center was, where there was a place to go. The city's working on that. But I wish that everybody just knew where that was. There are resources, but I think that we could do a better job communicating what's available. And I think that's not only true for San Francisco. I think that's true throughout the Bay Area.
2: Absolutely. There are so many hidden resources around which need finding and uncovering. I think that's exactly on the point. And I also want to give a plug for our Age In on June 4th, which is perfectly related to our conversation. The topic is Elder Wisdom, an overlooked resource for trying times. We are assembling elders who have been changemakers all their lives, who will share their insights with us. Thank you, Janet, for this amazing conversation. I think we are all inspired and we're all going to go out beyond just moving our trash in and out and we're going to (laughs) start community gardens. And yeah, it was a really inspiring conversation for all of us. Well, I very much appreciate having this dialogue and conversation. Hope everyone has a lovely week. Yes. And before we close, I also want to give a shout out to Amber Carroll who was at the birth of our at-home-on-air conversations. She helped us with our first Zoom meeting two years ago, which was then a very foreign affair. (laughs) So thank you, Amber, for this great collaboration. Yes, so
0: many good things have come out of this pandemic that would not have happened without it. So
2: there's a bit of a silver lining. There is. Thank you all.
1: This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home with Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at at homewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.